In a sudden, dramatic and unexpected outburst, Moses has come crashing down the mountain in fury, hurling down the stone tablets bearing the Ten Commandments, destroying them. Succumbing to pressure from the rest of the Israelites who assume that God has abandoned them and that Moses is never coming back, Aaron has built an effigy shaped like a calf. Worshipping this idol rather than God is a catastrophic dropped ball by the Israelites. First, they are cut down by fired-up Levites commissioned by Moses to go on an indiscriminate killing spree. Then, the rest of the calf worshippers are struck down by plague. And now, God has announced that he won't be going with his people to Canaan, a huge and demoralising vote of no confidence. Seemingly abandoned in the desert, Moses has returned up the mountain and back into the complete unknown as the book of Exodus reaches its season finale. This is Holy Bible episode 26, A Month Without Food. We're almost at the end of the Bible's second book and we still have plenty of gas in the tank. Thank you for travelling with us this far. If you've just started here, it's been quite a ride. Listeners haven't had to suspend disbelief quite as much as they did in the book of Genesis, but they do have to picture some epic plagues and infestations, a road through the sea, and an old man spending 40 days up a mountain without food or drink, receiving instructions from God. And this is where Moses remains for much of the book. These are far from the most exciting pages of the Bible, and it's scenarios like these that deter all but the most driven readers. Anyone who loves story and character development, or even a bit of historical excitement, will be left disappointed at what appears to be an almost obsessive, compulsive set of directives on how to construct a portable temple. However, it clearly does matter to those who believe in the Bible as the voice of God, channeled through human agents. And the most simple message is that God sees worshipping him as one of the most important things his people can do. That's why his tabernacle must be as close to perfect as any structure on earth, and why so many pages are dedicated to its design and construction. Early believers held that this was God's physical home on earth. Some claim that it's an earthly representation of the heavenly realm, but nowhere in the Bible does it expressly say this. Christians believe that Jesus replaces the tabernacle and that he came to live at the centre of his people's lives just as the desert temple was at the centre of the Israelite camp. But all of that is a long way off. So, for the last time, let's follow Moses back up the mountain. Up on the summit of Mount Sinai, God continues to hand rules to Moses. Many of these were covered the first time he was up the mountain. The Israelites aren't allowed to make idols, they must keep the Passover at the correct time and buy back their firstborn sons and male animals from God with the half-shekel tax. God reminds them again that donkeys should be redeemed with lambs or have their necks broken. No one is to appear at the tabernacle empty-handed, he says, and the Sabbath must be honoured by everyone even during the harvest. The festivals of Tabernacles and Pentecost must also be celebrated, and God promises to increase Israel's territory in Canaan. He adds that no one will make attempts to encroach on land owned by Israelites while they are worshipping him at the special festivals that call them away from home three times a year. The information appears to be a recap of the salient points of the laws which God ran through earlier, and there's very little new news here. 
God reminds Moses that Passover sacrifices can't involve yeast, the food cannot be kept until the next day, the best crops from the first harvest need to be brought to him, and a young goat may not be cooked in its mother's milk. Finally, God tells Moses to write every one of these laws down. Moses spends 40 days and nights on Mount Sinai, during which time he neither eats nor drinks. Only Elijah and Jesus match this feat in the Bible, and fasts such as these are seen as completely miraculous, as no human can come close to surviving this long without food or water. The practice of abstaining from food runs through the Bible like a red thread. Many of the book's most celebrated characters fast at least once. David, Esther, Daniel and Paul are just some of those who put in days without food. However, listeners may be surprised to learn that there is no official rule that says believers must join in. Generally, fasting is a personal choice and believers fast in the hope that God will help them make the right decision, guide them through tough situations, heal them or reveal information to them. In times of national crisis in the Old Testament though, the Jews occasionally fast together as a team. The only day that Jews are expected to fast en masse is the Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur, a day of purification and prayer where the people apologise for the wrong they have done and ask God for the slate to be wiped clean. Fasting itself is neither specifically Jewish nor Christian. The ancient Greeks fast, as do Zoroaster, Confucius and the Indian yogis. Today's Christians who fast generally spend 24 hours without eating, although the occasional glass of water is allowed. Some fast for longer, and a hardcore few even get to the same 40-day marathon that Jesus spends fasting in the Judean desert. Those who fast often pray during the time they would normally spend preparing or eating food, and the hunger pangs that come as part of the fasting package remind them of their dependence on God. Christians believe that true fasting involves forgetting your own needs so that you can care for others, rather than it being a day of rumbling stomachs and lightheadedness that is endured simply to get favours from God. Although fasting is not a competitive sport, Frenchwoman Martha Robin spent the 50 years until her death in 1981 with the bread and wine given to her during daily mass as her sole sustenance. 40 days seems a long time to be up the mountain, and some experts believe that this is because Moses needs plenty of time to impress upon God how mortified he is at the behaviour of the rest of his people. After the 40 days is over, God inscribes the two blank tablets with the Ten Commandments, the fundamental rules which his people are duty-bound to follow. According to Jewish tradition, the stone on which the Ten Commandments is written is sapphire, symbolising the sky and the heavens where God has his throne. If, however, the tablets are made from the local rock available on Mount Sinai, they would have been written on granite. After the 40 days is up, Moses returns to the people who this time haven't created any new gods to worship in his absence. He arrives back in the camp with the newly minted Ten Commandments and is unaware that his face is still glowing from his encounter with God. He's so radiant that the rest of the Israelites are afraid of him, perhaps assuming that he has transformed into some kind of God himself. Moses calls out to his brother Aaron, no doubt to let him know that it really is him and that everything is okay. Aaron fetches the rest of Israel's leaders and they regroup with Moses for a debrief. The rest of the camp then gathers and Moses shares the laws given to him by God 
on Mount Sinai. From now on, Moses wears a veil when he is with the people so that his radiance doesn't distract or unnerve them. But when he is meeting God, the veil is removed. Seeing as the Sabbath is so important to God, Moses organises a mass assembly. Here it is drilled into the people that keeping the seventh day holy is so important that anyone who fails to do so will be put to death. Not even a fire is to be lit in their homes, Moses tells them. Now that the law giving is over, the practicalities of building and creating everything according to God's plan need to be taken in hand. Although the tabernacle is an especially elaborate tent, the Israelites would be no strangers to fabricating canvas dwellings, as they must erect and dismantle their own tents each time the camp moves on. However, the job given to them by Moses is next level set building and costume design. There is a huge amount of work to be done, and Moses explains to everyone exactly what needs to be created and what materials need to be found in order to complete it. Moses also appeals to skilled artisans who can help build the temple, create its textiles and produce clothing for the priests. He lists all the jobs that need completing in order to build the tabernacle, its furniture and accessories, as well as the splendid garments that be worn by Aaron and his sons. His appeal for materials is an effective one and people are moved to give whatever they can of their gold jewellery, brooches, earrings and ornaments which they wave in the air as an offering to God, probably at the tent of meeting. Anyone who has blue, scarlet or purple thread, linen, animal skins, silver, bronze or acacia wood brings it to God. Women who can spin offer their services. The elders bring gemstones for the priest's ephod and breastplate, as well as the spices and all the necessary ingredients for the anointing oil and the incense. All the materials are given for free, and the sense is that by donating their most precious treasures, the people are fully committing to following God. Moses explains to the people that God has chosen Bezalel to create and direct the work, listing the skills which he says God has blessed him with. He also points out that Bezalel and his co-worker Aholiab are also gifted teachers who can pass on their skills to others. These men can design, carve, engrave and embroider, and are commissioned as overseers of a wider team charged with pulling together the tabernacle and priestly regalia. Moses gathers his creative team together and provides them with the materials which they will need. However, donations are still pouring in and the workers are spending their time accepting treasures which they now no longer need as everything required for the tabernacle and priest's wardrobe has already been brought in. The artisans drop what they are doing and find Moses who orders the rest of the camp to hold back from giving any more towards the work. The process of fabricating a place to worship God has begun and this exciting, important and creative project marks a high point in the Israelites' journey. The book of Exodus relates how the creative workforce constructs the tabernacle, the ark, the table, the lampstand, the two altars, the basin and the linen courtyard, all according to God's blueprint dictated to Moses up the mountain. As you might imagine, these pages contain a lot of detail, and to list them here would involve a carbon copy retelling from earlier episodes, where Moses first received the plans. The Bible doesn't flinch at these repetitions. These chapters especially aren't written to be read as entertainment, and are closer to an instruction manual than they are to storytelling. The book also tallies up the volume of treasure that goes into the tabernacle's construction. 
Responsibility for counting the donations which Bezalel and Holiab and their team have at their disposal is given to Aaron's son Ithamar. The amounts are listed. 1.1 imperial tons of gold, 3.75 tons of silver, plus the 44 pounds of silver collected by the temple tax paid by over 600,000 of Israel's men. The donated silver is used to make the basis for the tabernacle walls and the curtain between the holy place and the most holy place. The silver from the half-shekel tax is used to make the hooks and other adornment for the wooden posts on which the tabernacle wall curtains are hung. The bronze donated weighs in at around 2.65 tonnes and is used to make the basis for the entrance, the altar and all its utensils, the basis for the courtyard wall and all the tent pegs that keep the tabernacle and its courtyard secure. Exodus then runs through the fabrication of Aaron's ephod, breastpiece and robe, his son's tunics, underwear and sashes, and the turban with its inscribed plate, all in the same kind of detail related earlier to Moses by God. Building the tabernacle and crafting all the paraphernalia that goes inside it is not a project that can be rushed. Almost a year after the exodus from Egypt and nine months after arriving in Sinai, work on the fabulous tent is complete. The entire shebang is brought to Moses to inspect and it's an emphatic thumbs up from the Israelites leader who blesses the people who worked so hard on it and who gave so generously to make it happen. It's hard for readers to imagine where Moses and his team get all their building materials in the middle of the desert. There are no usable sources of wood in the Sinai wilderness, and the acacia that is used for the temple tables, boards, poles and the ark itself has all been brought from Egypt. Given the hasty exit from Ramses, remember the Israelites don't even have time for their bread to rise, it's impressive at how many goods and chattels they're able to bring with them and how they carry them. It helps to understand the number of people fleeing Egypt. Estimates are around 2 million, even though the Bible generally excludes women and children from any census. If that's the case, that's only one pound of metal for every 130 or so Israelites, leaving others free to carry wood, cloth, precious stones, animal skins and other materials that might be used in building the tabernacle. As a rough idea of the value of the treasure, the gold collected by the Israelites would be worth around £33.7 million today. However, it would only make a block just under two feet cubed. For those of you not familiar with imperial measurements, I put the metric ones in the show notes. Now that it's been completed, the tabernacle needs to be set up and filled with its treasure and used. The new year is approaching and it feels appropriate that the first day of the year is chosen to dedicate the tabernacle. According to Exodus, Moses is given instructions by God as to the order of how everything should be assembled. First to go into the tent will be the ark, which must then be shielded from view by the curtain. Then the table and its settings are to be brought in, followed by the lampstand, whose lamps must be lit. The altar for burning incense is to be installed and the curtain drawn across to close the holy place from the courtyard to keep it sacred. Outside the tabernacle, the altar for burnt offerings is to be set in place and between the altar and the entrance to the tent should be the basin which is filled with water. The courtyard must then be arranged around the whole tabernacle. The special anointing oil is to be splashed on the altar, its utensils and the basin and its stand to dedicate them to God. Aaron and his sons must be brought to the basin and washed before Aaron is fitted out in his fabulous priestly apparel. 
he too will be anointed with the oil, a symbolic act that sets him aside as God's priest. His son should be dressed and anointed, and God reiterates that this is the beginning of a priesthood that will endure for generations. Moses follows God's instructions to the letter. First the bases go down, then the frames are inserted into them. Next come the crossbars, over which are draped the canvas shrouds and the animal skin covers. Moses takes the stone tablets and places them in the ark and arranges all the furnishings according to the divine orders. He places the sacred bread on the table, lights the lamps and burns incense on the altar. Once the curtain has been drawn across the entrance, Moses burns meat and bread on the main altar. Aaron and his sons wash their hands and feet in the basin so that they are clean before entering the tabernacle or approaching the altar. The courtyard is placed around the tent, closed off with a curtain, and the work is complete. Once everything is finished, the book of Exodus explains how God appears above the tabernacle in the cloud. It's a fascinating combination of prosaic attention to detail and fantastical supernatural intervention, and the book registers no surprise at all that an apparently divine pillar of cloud arrives to validate the building work. Instead, Exodus describes how the tent is filled with God's glory. In fact, Moses is unable to enter because of this, but if a seal of approval from the Almighty is needed, this is it. From now on, readers are told that there is always a pillar of cloud or fire above the tabernacle, which, confusingly, is also referred to as the Tent of Meeting, the earlier, simpler tent that is now clearly redundant. Only when the cloud lifts from the tabernacle do the people pack up the camp and move, and the pillars are described as a perennial phenomenon throughout the Israelites' desert travels. Bible wonks have worked out that the tabernacle could be set up by 24 men in the morning and dismantled and packed away in just a couple of hours. It's hard to imagine the sense of excitement, awe and sheer satisfaction that this incredible feat of design and construction has been completed in a desert by people whose previous job appears to have been baking bricks and setting them one on top of the other on Egyptian building sites. This is the grandest of grand designs, and it's only surpassed half a millennium later when Israel's King Solomon fabricates a permanent temple out of wood, stone and gold. Now, the Israelites have the basic rules which they need to live harmoniously and humanely with one another, and a fabulous, if temporary, temple in which they can worship God. The book of Exodus is over, but in many ways, Israel's adventures have just begun. Holy Bible Season 3 is next. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook or send feedback to contact at holybible.com.